thank you for joining us at the bar for another virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Braceras from Independent Women's Law Center, and I'm joined by my colleague, Inez Stepman with the Independent Women's Forum. Today, we're going to be talking with one of our country's top appellate litigators, Aaron Murphy, who, along with former U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement, recently represented gun owners in a major Second Amendment case before the United States Supreme Court. Um, welcome, Aaron. And uh, that case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, involved a constitutional challenge to a New York City law prohibiting people from carrying guns outside the home. So this is about concealed carry. Um, and Murphy and Clement, who were Kirkland and Ellis partners, uh, won their case in the high court this past June. But then after their win, Kirkland gave them an ultimatum, um, withdraw from representing their clients, even after this very prestigious, huge win, um, or uh, withdraw from the firm. So they, they went ahead and, and left the firm. Um, they've now started their own law firm, Clement Murphy. Uh, but Aaron is joining us now to talk about the Bruin case itself. Um, and then this very, I think, uh, critical turning point for the legal profession, for big law, this ultimatum that was issued uh, to to them um, and, and their decision to leave big law. So thank you so much for, for joining us at the bar, Aaron. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's start. Let's start with like the the facts of of the case itself. Can you lay out for our listeners, you know, what the, the what the New York law was, um, and then how you ended up representing the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association? Sure, absolutely. So, um, so so New York, like a, a handful of states in the country, had uh, many many states have some sort of permitting or licensing regime to carry a firearm, but but just a few states have or or now for some had, uh, what are known as, as may issue regimes. So uh, in, in the world of permitting, we kind of put things in, in, in two categories, shall issue or may issue. And in a lot of states, there are shall issue states, which means there's some objective criteria. You know, you got to pass a background check, um, things like that, you know, pay a fee, whatever it is. But as long as you pass that objective criteria, you get the license and you can carry. And it, it varies a little by state, whether it's for concealed or open or both. Um, some states you don't need a license or permit at all. But um, but there were you know, a handful of states that had 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 regimes that operated differently and basically built into them a requirement to demonstrate that you had something generally referred to as kind of good cause or good reason, um, which was a discretionary requirement that they then defined as meaning that you had to have like a really good reason to want to carry a firearm. Um, it may even be that you needed to demonstrate something like a documented threat to your safety, like a restraining order um, or, you know, something beyond just kind of, oh, I work nights and, you know, showing that you had like a very particularized type of job. Uh, and so who, who, who were the, the determiners or who were the deciding people? Like if you wanted to carry a firearm in New York and you wanted to apply to do that under this law, who, who would make the decision as to whether or not you had a good reason to do that or not? Yeah, so it happened at a local level. Um, so so you'd have it, which is pretty typical in, in a lot of, you know, in, in the states that had these it'd be at kind of a local level. So what you'd find is, you know, some parts of the state where most people got a permit and some parts of the state like New York City where essentially nobody could ever get a permit. Um, and, and then these decisions were, you know, 
to the extent they're reviewable at all, reviewable under a, a highly, you know, just abusive discretion type standard where there was a ton of deference um, and, the, and the case law had developed such that, you know, if you couldn't come in with that, with that specifically articulable threat to your safety, it was perfectly fine to be denied your right. So you not only had a regime where, you know, you needed to kind of affirmatively demonstrate that you had a good reason to, to exercise what we have always argued was a constitutional right, um, but you had built into it this just highly discretionary regime, which is particularly troubling when you're dealing with constitutional rights. You know, you want to have very clear and hopefully objective standards so you don't have to worry about, you know, even apart from kind of the good cause nature of the regime about having uh, the ability to exercise fundamental rights just sort of left to the whim and discretion of, you know, of, of government officials. So, um, so you know, we, we had challenged uh, these, we, we've been challenging these laws for probably about a decade um, in, in the couple of the, the handful of states that have them. Uh, and New York's law was one that had, had been challenged before and um, the Second Circuit had upheld the law. Uh, after there were some changes in membership on the Supreme Court, we decided to kind of take another run at some of the jurisdictions where these types of laws had been held constitutional. Um, and, and lo and behold, not that long after Justice Barrett joined the court, the court granted cert to finally resolve this question that had been kicking around for a very long time, um, kind of almost since Heller, uh, of whether there is a Second Amendment right to carry a firearm outside the home for self-defense. So that was a core issue in the case. And it was not a case, you know, that was specific to concealed or open carry. Uh, you know, our, our argument was always simply uh, there needs to be some outlet. It can't be that. And, and the way it operates in a lot of states is like it's it's categorically prohibited to carry one way. And the other way you could only carry if you have the license that it's impossible to get. So functionally, there's no way to carry. So, uh, you know, we, we were never challenging it specific to a state has to offer open or has to offer concealed. You know, we basically just argue you, you got to offer something. Law abiding citizens should have some means to carry outside the home because as a historical matter, that's just was was clearly part of the Second Amendment right. So this might be a good time to sort of just remind our audience, particularly our, our non-legal audience, what the Second Amendment says. Um, as I think we have a graphic that we can put up. There it is. Um, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, so that is what the Second Amendment says. Uh, you alluded uh, in your in your sort of opening remarks, Aaron, to an earlier case called Heller um, that involved the right to have a handgun in the home. Um, that sort of addressed the, the keep part of keep and bear arms, whereas this case... Um, as you mentioned, was was talking about whether one can um, defend themselves with a handgun outside the home and how how states are able to regulate that. Um, can you just kind of tee up for us, if you will, the sort of the competing arguments by the time you got to the high court, um, what what you argued and what the other side argued and and ultimately what the court decided Sure. Yeah. So, so, you know, one of the big kind of lurking questions in, in all of this was how you should think about resolving these questions. Um, should you think about that by looking to kind of the, 
historical understanding of the Second Amendment? Or should the state kind of get deference in its policy judgments uh, under, you know, kind of thinking about does it have good arguments about public safety and the like? So, so there was sort of a debate going on all throughout the the the, the, the litigation of this case about kind of which way to come at it. And by the time we were at the Supreme Court, um, the, the state of New York, I would say to their credit, you know, they 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 pretty much agreed that at least the core place the analysis should start is by looking at that historical tradition. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of the briefing on both sides focused on trying to make a case that these kinds of restrictions, you know, were or were not um, consistent with the way this, the, the, the right to keep and bear arms would have been understood at the time of the founding and, you know, not that long after. Um, now, you know, I, I think, and the court, you know, most of them agreed that that we had by far the stronger argument on that historically. Um, but you know, the state didn't really kind of say forget history and only think about policy. They did try to come up with some arguments as to why uh, they thought that their law was analogous to certain types of restrictions. The problem, I think, that 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 you know that we consistently pointed out is. Look, while there may have been some degree of regulation of the right to carry outside the home, there's just nothing kind of this is like what the court said in Heller about uh, where they were dealing with a complete ban on keeping a handgun inside the home. Here, too, there's just no historical basis for having like essentially a complete ban on the ability to carry a firearm outside the home at all. Um, and so, you know, we argued that you can't you can't take from the fact that there may have been some degree of regulation in certain places or of certain people, that that means the state can say absolutely not, but even law abiding citizens, you just all, you know, most of you cannot cannot carry period. Um, so that was a big part of the argument. And then the state did argue that, you know, whatever the history said, it should get some degree of kind of deference on its policy views about the importance of having this kind of law in place. Um, so so kind of and, 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 and a lot of our response to that was actually just that's not really appropriate in the context of a fundamental constitutional right. Uh, you know, there's there's public safety arguments that can be made about any constitutional right, but we don't typically allow those to override the judgment of the people to enshrine a fundamental right in the Constitution. And so that's kind of the framework through which the the arguments were made to the court here. Um. I don't know if Jennifer wants to to jump in with the the uh, brief that actually IW and and the, our law center filed that was ended up getting cited in this case by Alito. Um, but so I don't know if Jennifer Jennifer, do you want to talk about that since that's your? Um, sure. I mean, well, so we filed a brief um, in in support of of Aaron's clients, um, just sort of giving a, a a female perspective, if you will, and and it was sort of a, I guess you could call it sort of a Brandeis brief where we talked about um, the importance of this right, in particular for women, and obviously it's it's a fundamental right that all Americans share, but we talked about how for women in particular. Um, the right to to carry a, a handgun for self-defense, um, you know, can can be very important. And um, we, we were gratified that Justice Alito did cite that brief um, in, in, in his opinion. So um, we were happy about that. But hopefully it was helpful, Aaron. Yeah, yeah no, that, I mean, that old brief. Sorry. Uh, I, old, I was just going to say, I think it's, it's just really great to have, you know, there's there, there tends to be 
a lot of stereotyping and just assumptions and when it comes to second amendment issues that you know that there's just some isolated small segment of the community that cares about this and that most people don't so i think you know it's just it's 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 hugely important to to help the court understand that you know that 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 the majority of the country supports the notion of a second amendment that protects a fundamental individual right that's a cross-cutting issue not something where you know only a certain demographic of the country um, supports the issue and it's, it's been great you know i do a lot of litigation in this space to see amicus briefs from you know groups that groups groups like a women's group that i think for some people will look and think like oh that's not quite who i would have expected to see on this this side mm -hmm. of the issue so I, I think it makes it it, it does make just a really important difference in um, it, it, as part of that dialogue that we're always having with the courts. Yeah, I was I was going to say that that the the phrase "God made man, but Samuel Colt made them equal" applies actually more strongly to women, and in a sense, uh, being the the weaker sex, uh, we we <laughs> we need some kind of equalizer in in uh, conflict. But um, so we we've covered the difference between the shall issue and the the may issue. Um, do you, do you think this is like shaky ground going forward based on this case for any of the May issue states um, or regimes or local regimes? Or do you think it's just you have to be as completely restrictive as New York City has been where basically nobody, as you said, like basically nobody can get this permit, right? So you can argue very strongly this right is just not functional, right? In this city, it's being denied. Um, do you think that there will, because a lot of the history, um, to the extent that the court has picked up Second Amendment cases at all at the highest level, it's been like one big case and then, you know, years where essentially states and cities try to circumvent the most basic holding of that case. So what do you predict is going to happen here with this kind of patchwork regime? Yeah, so I, I I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong, but at least to my knowledge at this point, you know, I don't I don't think any state that has a sort of good cause requirement may issue regime is 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 yet tried to claim that it's still constitutional. Um, you know, certainly California has has their attorney general has said they they don't think that that piece of the law is enforceable anymore. And I think it's pretty clear under the Bruin decision that having those kind of discretionary permitting requirements is is just not okay. I mean that. You know, there was there was a separate concurrence and some language in the opinion making clear that the court's not saying you can't have permitting or licensing regimes at all, but mm. they really need to be objective. And there's some great language in the majority opinion about how, you know, they can't be you know, there, there could be still be challenges to them if, say, you set the fees so high as to make it impossible for the average person to afford the license or, you know, things that create burdens like that. But where I actually think um, you know, where where what we have seen very quickly from some of the states that have been the most hostile to Second Amendment rights is, you know, one of the lurking issues in the case, because the court ultimately did decide that there is generally a right to carry outside the home. But the court also said that doesn't mean you can carry everywhere. And, you know, we, we always said it doesn't mean you can carry everywhere. There's the, there's there's some there's doctrine to support the idea that there's certain sensitive places that the court, the government can and of declare off limits to firearms. That's really where I think um, you know the first wave of kind of new laws is, is is headed. Is trying to declare as much as possible to be a sensitive place. Um, and the court actually kind of anticipated this and said in its opinion, 
look, you can't get around this by claiming that like the entirety of New York City is a sensitive place. Um, but that's nonetheless sort of what New York is now trying to do. Um, so, and, you know, there's been, been a lot of noise about California looking at some similar legislation. And, you know, so I think kind of the, the, the next ground will be um, the next fight in this, in this, this, this battle will be kind of what is a sensitive place and how do we think about that historically and making sure that court that that the states don't kind of do what they've been doing for the past 10 years with this which is turn around and pass a bunch of other laws that are designed to say okay here's your permit but you know we've, we've declared it useless in functionally every place that you'd ever want to actually be able to carry your firearm for self-defense um so this is obviously a big victory not just for the movement at large for people who support the second amendment gun owners and so on uh, but it was also, you know, it's it's a big professional victory, right? Winning a big case like this, generally, I mean, how how would how would you expect a major law firm to uh, celebrate a a huge and prominent victory like this? Well, I guess it depends how much time you've spent litigating controversial issues at a major law firm. Um, but you know, normally, no, no, normally, you know, firms firms like to see you uh, win your cases. That's that's a that's that's the goal. Um, and you know, I mean, this was a hard fought victory over a decade, and not only one on the Second Amendment, but also a, a, an opinion that really has some landmark discussion of the right way to understand constitutional rights writ large that I think will have tremendous implications in, in a lot of areas of the constitution. So, you know, if, if, if you have a Supreme Court and appellate practice that's focused heavily on constitutional law, like, you, you know, you like to think this is what people are hoping they'll get out of your practice at your law firm. And what in fact happened when you won this case? Well, in in fact, you know, um, our, our our firm decided that they they just wanted out of the business of Second Amendment work entirely and wanted out of the business of Second Amendment work immediately. Um, and even if that meant uh, just dropping existing clients, not only in this case but in multiple cases where we have we we also in addition to this case. We had some petitions pending at the Supreme Court that the court was basically holding for this case that, as we expected, all got sent back down to the lower courts for additional litigation. So, you know, as we were in the midst of kind of the most critical juncture yet of litigation on, in, in these cases, uh, the firm decided that, you know, they 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 were not interested in continuing to have those those clients uh, and were not interested uh, in continuing to have us if we insisted on not dropping our, our, our clients after our big win at the court. And you, you and Paul wrote um, an op-ed discussing this that was published in the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's called The Law Firm That Got Tired of Winning. I love that title. I don't know if you came up with that or if that was something that the editors at the journal did. But um but it, it's a great title and it's a great piece that lays out um, your rationale for, for deciding to leave and, and start your own practice. Um, tell us a little bit about how that transition has been and, you know, was it, was it hard to make that decision? I mean, it's, um, you know, in some ways it seems like an easy decision sort of morally and ethically, but, you know, always difficult to, to, untangle a partnership and, and stuff like that and go out on your own. So what was, tell us a little bit about your thinking there. 
Yeah, you know, it, it, it it's a tough situation. Um, and there was a lot about it that was, you know, was hard and, and sad. I mean, I, for, for the most part, had a very good experience at Kirkland. And I think Paul would, would, would say the same thing. But but I would also say that the decision was the easiest part about this. Um, and, and it was easy, you know, for, for both, both, both because we'd essentially both already made it before, um, but also because it's just obviously right. Um, you know, anybody who knows Paul probably knows that he uh, left a previous firm over a similar ultimatum. And I was working with him at the time and left with him um, and have been practicing with him ever since. You know, we've been practicing together for uh, for, for over a decade at this point. Um, and, and part of the reason, you know, a big part of the reason I left back then was because I believed very much in um, the stance that he took. Uh, and, and it's the same stance we, we took now, which is, look, you know, there's it's, it's one thing to make decisions about the cases you take on in the first instance, about who you want to be your clients. But once you take on clients, I mean, we're, you know, sure law is a business, everything's a business, but but we're a profession with professional obligations and obligations that we owe to our clients, you know, wholly apart from what 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 some may think is in sort of the be, the, the the business interests of of a firm or a practice. And you just don't kind of fire your clients because you've decided that they're a little too unpopular or too many people are complaining or whatever it may be. And, you know, I think the, the, the big problem once you, once you cross that line is how do you draw the line? And, you know, I think there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of great colleagues I had at Kirkland. I had conversations with them about this, that, that struggled to kind of understand the firm's thinking and some clients that struggle to understand this. And when your client asks, well, if, if you can do this to them, like what's to stop you from doing it to me? I don't, I, I really don't know what the answer is. You know, if, if you, if you, if you have that view that it's okay mm -hmm. to abandon your clients kind of mid, mid representation, not because, you know, they stop paying their bills or they're not cooperating with you or anything they did wrong, but just, you just, decide you really would rather not be affiliated with them anymore, uh, you know, particularly if the reason is because their cause is sort of unpopular with some people. I mean, that's that's what we do as lawyers. You know, we, we we're, we're, we're supposed to be there for people who have a hard time finding representation. I, I have a quick question. I, I don't know how much you feel you can speak to this, but in this particular case at Kirkland, how much do you think this was a genuine feeling on the part of the partnership that they did not want to have clients like this anymore, as opposed to pressure from the outside or from younger associates. Um, I, you know, and I ask because, you know, I, I know of other firms who have been, you know, pressured by, by law schools where they hire um, that, you know, they don't want to send people to interview with these law firms if they're going to represent such and such client. So I'm, I'm just sort of curious whether there was outside pressure or whether this was actually an organic sentiment. Yeah, that was really my my question as well. Like, from what direction is this pressure coming within the law firm? Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like, yeah, frankly, you probably should get someone from Kirkland on here and ask them. But um, but my best sense of it is. That, that it was, you know, a little a little bit of a combination. Um, you know, I think there was definitely some degree of outside pressure. I think there was some degree of what I would call kind of 
a combination of the two, which is inside pressure saying they're concerned that it's causing that it's, you know, that, that, that you're running into the recruiting issues with students or whatever it may be, you know, so, and I don't, I, I, I'm quite sure there were plenty of people who called and complained that we did this work on, on the flip side, you know, I'm quite sure there were plenty of people who called and complained after the firm decided to abandon this work. Um, so I, I think that's a, one of the risks is, you know, you always hear from the people who are complaining about what you're doing um, and, and they're usually the loud ones and, and you're not hearing, you know, you don't get a lot of calls just being like, Hey, chairman of the firm, I just want to tell you how happy I am that you're doing, you know, this, this, this type of work or this type, because you're more likely to get at the people who want to, Kind of make an issue of things. Um, so I, I think that's part of what you know, uh, law firms and 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 everybody, frankly, has to be a little careful about. You know, not not just here listening to the loudest voice in the room. Um, but you know, I, I my sense is there was there was there was some degree of both. But you know, ultimately, the it, it was certainly not a decision made by me. So uh, so yeah, my 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 insight is imperfect. Um. What what are the implications then going forward of this? I mean, Jennifer was just saying this is not the only time this has happened. You yourself and Paul have had to leave a previous firm. Um, you know, what what are the implications of there being only a, a handful of kind of top flight firms like yours that can handle what are, I don't even want to say unpopular cases, um, because I don't think they actually, you know, all, all polling shows that this is a fairly popular thing, but they're unpopular within a certain elite circle. I mean, what, what are the implications for the rule of law, for like the ability to get representation, um, when overwhelmingly these large law firms are starting to dump issues one after the other as basically untouchable? Like it's 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 all really you know it's it's very unfortunate and it's not good for the profession. Um, you know you shouldn't kind of have to go and practice at some you know at at a boutique just to be able to do issues that come from a certain political perspective that, as you say, while while popular with a lot of the country, it just happens to not be popular in you know in 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 certain circles that that speak loudly in in. The boardrooms or you know within the firm committees or whatever it may be and I, I think on the one hand you know the the good news is there are there are plenty of people I mean it's we're not we're not the only firm out there that are have said you know what it's important to us to be able to do lots of work and kind of left and set up their own shop um on the flip side you know I do think I mean that's that's frankly it's easier to do if like me you're an appellate specialist um you can go and set up a boutique law firm and handle the kind of work we do you know it's it, it's it's a little harder if you don't have uh, the ability to access a big firm if say you have one of these cases that needs to go into full scale litigation with a lot of discovery and the type of thing that a lot of boutique law firms are just not, uh, you know, I mean, that's not to say there's 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 some really great boutique trial law firms, but you know, it's a little harder to have the scale to handle that kind of litigation. So it, it can become a real issue there. And and frankly, you know, I mean, it just shouldn't be. It, it's not good for the development of law across the board, whichever side of issues you're on, to kind of just have like oh, certain people in certain firms handle one side and, and one the other, because part of what makes you good at 
the job is being able to get out of that mind frame and just think about it objectively and come at an issue from the perspective of somebody who might not have your own instincts. And, you know, we, we like to have people in our practice who have completely different instincts. You know, there's just, there's just kind of like, I often say when you're doing, you know, a moot court to prepare for argument. I mean, it's great to have somebody who wants to come in and kind of ask what they think are the questions that Justice Sotomayor would ask. But like, there's no substitute for having someone who actually thinks like Justice Sotomayor come in and ask the questions that's on their mind. And if you don't have a practice and a firm where you have people that actually have those different perspectives and where you challenge yourself to take cases that come from different perspectives and try and you know make the arguments even when they're not the ones that that strike you at first blush as you know where where your own instincts lie i mean it, it actually i think it, it it's detrimental to the development of lawyers and ultimately the development of the law you see it uh you know this type of thing happening a lot in terms of uh law, the pro bono practice at law firms where young associates are encouraged to get experience by taking on, you know, cases pro bono and sometimes, you know, coming up with their own ideas of pro bono work, but then only to find that, you know, certain types of pro bono work are, are not tolerated at the firm. Um, usually, I, in my experience, I've seen that come up when a young associate wants to do some sort of pro-life litigation or litigation um, or pro bono work on behalf of a religious organization. Um, it usually uh, often gets shot down. Um, but but this is bigger because, this, you know, when you're talking about paying clients, I mean, I, I, you know, it seems it seems contrary to good business to turn away paying clients. Right. Regardless of, of what you think of their of their issues. But I guess I guess they don't care about that. They'd rather lose the money. Well, you know, I mean, when that's that's. There, there's there's up and downsides of being at a big firm, and you know one of one of the upsides of being at a very very large, very well run firm is you know they they endeavor to not be dependent on any particular client and to be in a position to be able to you know to turn to turn things away, big and small. Um, but you know it it it, it is it it it, I, I, it also you know you're really just talking about something fundamentally different once you cross that line of saying we're we're we're, we're not just going to not take on the paying work like we're going to fire the clients and and if you're going to fire the paying clients i don't know why you can't fire you know the pro bono clients that become unpopular too um because again once once you've kind of decided that it's an appropriate basis to terminate representations that you just don't really kind of want to represent them anymore i I don't know what standards you articulate to decide which cases kind of fit and clients fit into that bucket. Um, but to your point, I do. Th there, there is also. I mean, this is this is a universal thing across big law. I think there's just an extraordinary double standard when it comes to uh, you know the pro bono cases and all these things. Where if you kind of go in with one type of case, you'll be told that's just too controversial for the firm to do, and then you'll kind of see somebody show up on the the other side of the exact same issue, and somehow the firm doesn't think it's controversial if you're you know if you're taking the position that they don't consider a controversial one. Which really, you know, it's one thing if you just want to say, well, we're we, 
we're hands off and, and some firms approach it this way, but you know, we're hands off on certain hot button political issues. We're not going to do it on either side. It's just, right. not oh, that's do. totally different. Yeah. But if you're telling associates like, look, we just, we can't do anything in the abortion space because that is just too controversial. Oh, but we'll, we're, we're okay. If it's pro, you know what we really mean, it's, it's, it's right. if you're on the pro life side, it's too controversial. Like, you know, that, 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 that's where I think uh, I found it very frustrating. It really has implications beyond the private practice of law because you start to see it in the law schools where there's this sense that, I mean, there used to be a sense that this is an adversary system. Everybody's entitled to counsel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you have two sides, you come in, they make arguments, they hash it out. And, and that's how our legal system works. But now there's this notion that that certain people and certain causes aren't worthy of representation at all, aren't worthy of, of even being on that equal footing. Um, we saw a classmate of mine, actually, Ron Sullivan, who was uh, teaching at Harvard Law School, got a lot of pushback when he represented Harvey Weinstein. Um, and he was, at the time, I guess, a resident advisor or a master of the college at Harvard, whatever they called it at the time. Um, and Harvard came under enormous pressure not to renew his contract, um, not to teach, but to, to be the, the residential advisor of the college because of a client he had taken on. And, you know, I'm no fan of Harvey Weinstein, but the man deserves a lawyer. So... You know, you see this not only in terms of firms, but you see it in terms of even the way society understands our basic adversarial system, which I find very troubling. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I, I, I'd say two things. One, like, I think all of this is very wrapped up in the whole broader issues going on with free speech right now and the idea that, you know, it's it's affirmatively okay to try to silence one side of the debate, you know. I mean, I, I just think that's so antithetical to our 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 constitutional tradition and everything this country's founded on. But it's it's just a variation of the same thing. And and I mean, really, you know, part of me, I mean, it's just, I have the same reaction to this that uh, you know to to those kinds of efforts to to prevent people from getting representation that I have to the whole First Amendment debate. It's, what are you so afraid of them having a good lawyer for? I mean, if, if, if they don't, you know, if, if, if this cause is wrong and it's not supported by the law and all of that, like, you know, even even the best lawyers are, are probably not going to prevail. So why not help the courts out? Let them feel like everybody. I mean, that's what our whole criminal justice system is built on, the idea that we want criminal defendants to, to get the representation they should have, to have the rights they should have. So we feel confident in the ultimate judgment of the court. And, you know, when, when you start thinking about it as like, no, 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 you know, we, we we're, we're so afraid of one side prevailing that we, we don't even want them to have like good lawyers or any lawyers who will show up and represent them. I mean, it's it, it just displays a, a remarkable lack of competence in, in the rule of law to, to sort out uh, in, in the end, you know, which which side is right. Well, and I mean, you see that and, uh, just a few days ago, the New York Times came out with a piece essentially from from two constitutional law professors arguing that we should basically scrap the constitution. So, I mean, I think that's, that's also connected to all of this, but I wanted to ask you to, to wrap this up. Um, a, a, a big question. So uh, feel free to maybe tackle only a small piece of it, but um, what kind of changes or reforms do you think would stop this larger train 
of because there, there seems like there's multiple sides to this. There's the issue Jennifer mentioned where you have increasingly woke law schools where the students don't recognize, for example, the merits of an adversarial system like what you're what you're saying. Um, you have students who don't believe that the First Amendment should exist and don't care that it's it, it does exist. Right. Um, and then there, there's the larger you know, sort of broader phenomenon of woke capital. We see this in other, you know, other institutions as well. There seems to be like a larger institutional warfare going on um, with this ideology. You know, within the law, can you think of any any reforms, whether that's, you know, sort of who needs to stand up and take a little personal courage or like more systemic reforms, like looking at what the ABA does or, you know, what, what do you think would stop this train? Because it seems like it's going in a destination, towards a destination that, is is getting quite scary. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I have, you know, just a, a, a couple of rather big picture generic thoughts. I mean, one is, you know, just because some people are, are, are very loudly questioning the foundations of our nation and our constitution doesn't mean those rights cease to exist. Um, and so it is important to take you know, to take the right issues and push them in the courts and the courts need to do their job and step in. And, you know, we we do thankfully right now have a Supreme Court that is, is has has consistently been very protective of First Amendment rights. Um, and, you know, that uh, there, there's a lot of issues. It's difficult to litigate these things because I know, you know, the university speech codes and stuff. I mean, everybody understands how to try and moot cases and do all of that to prevent them from getting to the courts because they know they're going to lose. But I, I do think it's important to not lose sight of, you know, some of the things that are going on here are not just discussions uh, that that are startling to, to hear people taking certain positions, but actual actions that are challengeable um, in court. And we should take advantage when we can of, you know, of stopping things, especially at the schools, at the public schools, where you have the ability to bring First Amendment and other types of challenges if, um, you know, when when you have things going on that are just antithetical to free speech principles. But But I think part of the more fundamental issue is you know, so so much of this is a product of people, of, of, of the decision makers hearing certain voices and thinking there aren't others or that the others don't care enough or aren't loud enough or there aren't as many of them or whatever it might be. And, and I don't think, you know, that that's universally proven true. I think in, in many of these instances, you can see whether it be firms or companies or whatever it is who kind of listened to those voices then find themselves in some real trouble with some, some people they didn't anticipate, whether it be their consumers or whatever it is, when they're on the other side of a decision they made that actually turned out to be a lot less popular than the very loud woke voices led them to believe it would be. So I think part of that is, you know, it's incumbent on, on all of us to, to not let the voices of people who are really kind of thinking about radically reshaping our constitutional rights to out you know, to, to, to completely outshout, you know, the voices of people who, who can explain why, no, that's, that's, you know, it's because we have a First Amendment that where you can have this kind of dialogue where you wouldn't be able to even make these arguments in many other countries throughout the world. And, and to keep talking and helping people understand the other side and, you know, to, to help, especially with young people, with students and, and young people starting in the workplace, to help them assure them that you know they're not like some you know disfavored minority. There there are other people out there who 
have conservative views or libertarian views or even just like not completely anti-establishment views um, and that it's okay. We can speak together and acknowledge that and you don't have to kind of secretly hide in the corner or have the, oh, here's the lunch nobody knows about where the conservatives get together and acknowledge like there's a few of us, you know, we, we help people feel more comfortable talking. I think that's one of the very first and very most important steps in all of this, especially with younger people so they don't kind of just grow up in a in an educational and work culture where they're like really you know led maybe not even incorrectly to believe that it will be detrimental to everything in their career if they acknowledge that they don't agree with what you know the loudest voices of the day are saying um i with that, I think we'll we'll probably wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Aaron Murphy. And also thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of At the Bar. Jennifer, you want to wrap us up? Sure. At the Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. And you can listen to At the Bar as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Join us in a few weeks for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, cheers. Thanks for joining us.